Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, thanks, Wes. Uh, Fritz, did Wes just call you old? (laughs) Yeah, I think he, yeah, I think he did, yeah. Um, (laughs) Why Fritz of all people, right? I mean, why has he got to pick on you this morning? I don't know. I don't know what that's all about. Yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. Uh, thanks, Wes. Great, great to have our kids in here with us and our students. Uh, you know, we don't get a chance to do that very often, so great to worship with them. Glad they were here this morning. And uh, I will say this about the dragon thing. Uh, you know, my son was in in service a few weeks ago when we did the dragon stuff, and he did. He told his mom afterwards, "I like it when Daddy talked about the dragon." So I'm not sure that he understood exactly what it meant, but you know, I, I guess I guess maybe you know, kids may enjoy this more than we think, but. Um, anyway, all that being said, we are continuing in our series called Revealed on the book of Revelation here this morning. And, uh, you know, one of the goals that we talked about early on and early on in our series about what we wanted to accomplish in this series was we wanted to, to, to get a better understanding of our interpretive skills, like how we interpret the Bible and not just how we interpret the book of Revelation, but just how we interpret scripture in general. And so we've talked a lot about like interpretive skills and interpretive approaches and methods and that kind of thing throughout the series. And I realize that for the most part, like probably for most of you, like you're not necessarily looking forward to coming to a sermon and hearing about interpretive methods of the Bible each Sunday morning. That might not be your first choice or your cup of tea, but let me just encourage you. I think that these discussions about interpretation, although they aren't our favorite things maybe to talk about, are critical in terms of understanding this book that we have in front of us, right? We realize that this is the most important book that was ever written in human history, and and those of us who believe that it is God's word, we believe that this is God's very word to us. And so uh, it is important uh, to understand and, and to, try to try to do everything we can to get it right. And I think part of what this has done in the book of Revelation, I hope it has helped you with your interpretation and perspective of Scripture. I know that it's helped me. I mean, as I've had to prepare each week, I, I will say that it has helped me in a lot of ways in terms of approaching, interpreting God's Word. I think about it almost as like kind of lifting weights. When you're lifting heavier weights, it really challenges you. And really, you see the results of it after a long period of time. It can wear you down, but at the same time, the results are great after that. And there's a lot of heavy lifting in the book of Revelation. So hopefully that has helped you, and I think one of the things that, um, I'm kind of continuing that discussion about interpretation, one of the things that comes up a lot in talking about interpreting Revelation is this uh, approach of interpreting, of whether we interpret Revelation literal or, or, or not. And I, I want to reframe the, the question, I want to reframe the terms in this way, because I think when we're talking about literal interpretation, what we should all be talking about, and I guess what a legitimate approach to interpretation should always be about, is getting at the literal meaning of what we're, what we're looking at and what we're reading at in Scripture. And what we mean by that is that we're trying to get at what it is that God is trying to communicate to us. What is the literal meaning? And I think it's important to define our terms in that way because um, you can come across, for example, places where we find a lot in the book of Revelation where there's figurative or symbolic language. And what that requires us to do then is to understand that there is figurative language being used here. And so to get at the literal meaning, we've got to interpret it figuratively, right? So that we can get at the literal meaning of what, what's behind that picture. I'll take a s- simple example to illustrate what I mean. I've, I've used this, I think, before in here. But Psalm 50 says, for example, that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, right? And we understand that, hopefully we understand that that's a figurative way of saying that God owns everything, that God owns of all creation. Now, if we were to interpret that literally, that would say, well, God owns the cows literally that live on 1,000 hills on the earth, 
right? Which might mean that God's a pretty, you know, significant rancher, but that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily communicate really what's behind this, right? The meaning is that God is the one who created it all. He's the one that owns it. And we have to understand that figuratively to get to the literal meaning. And so why am I saying that? Well, for what, of course, for what it's worth, anyone who understands that understands that you know, they don't interpret it literally. Even the most literal interpreter is not going to interpret it as God being a rancher with cows on a thousand hills. But well, the point is that we realize that there is sim- symbol, uh, symbolism and figurative language that's used in the Bible quite often. We see it in Proverbs. We see it in Psalms like we just talked about. We see it in places like Ecclesiastes. We see it in the Gospels. Jesus and his parables uses figurative language a lot. And we see it in a place like the book of Revelation, in the apocalyptic and prophetic literature that we see in this book. And so when it comes to dealing with apocalyptic imagery, though, that we find here in the book of Revelation, we want to remember that this imagery is often elastic in the sense that it can stretch to kind of imply a few different things about what it means and what it points to. And what do we mean by that? Well, an example of this might be like in chapter 13, for example. Whereas in chapter 12, we have the vision of the dragon with seven heads that is identified as Satan, like clearly in the context. And then we have the child who's identified there in that same vision, right, as, as, as the one who rules with the rod of iron, as the one who is the king of kings, as the one who ascends to the heavenly throne. And even though it doesn't say Jesus, we can say by context that's clearly pointing to Jesus. Both those symbols mean one thing. When we get to chapter 13, what we realize is we have these two beasts that kind of come out of nowhere. They come out of the sea and out of the land, and they seem to represent a whole lot of different things. In other words, we said earlier that the, the, the first beast, of course, represents kind of kings and kingdoms and power structures of this world. The second beast represents the deception of kind of the things that prop up those power structures of the world. So the deception that the beast uses in the world to manipulate systems and maybe economies and politics and even religion in some ways uh, to prop up the king and the kingdom who is the beast. But in all these things, these things kind of can represent different things throughout history. So in other words, when John and the original audience would have read this, probably what would have come to mind about the first beast is that this represents Rome, right? Because they're in the Roman Empire. And maybe the second beast represents Nero or represents one of those other evil emperors who were persecuting the church. That certainly could represent and certainly probably did represent that for them. But at the same time, those things can also continue to represent things as we go on throughout history. It's not just about one king and one kingdom at one time. It represents really the way that things are kind of the power structures that continue to exist throughout history until Jesus comes back that oppose the will of God, that oppose the kingdom and the kingship of Jesus in the world. And so when we get to a place like this, context really helps us understand by nature that apocalyptic imagery is being used to communicate something beyond itself. What this means is that when it comes to images like this, the image serves a bigger purpose, that it's communicating, its purpose in being there is to communicate a bigger message or a bigger idea. It serves the message rather than the message serving the image, if we can put it that way. And I, and I say that because I want us to realize that I think as important as it is for us to kind of define as many of these images as we can, I think at times we can get lost in the idea that every image we come across, we've got to define it as just one thing and figure it out, and that that's the point of Revelation. That's not really the point of these visions. These visions are giving us images that, yes, can be interpreted, but in the end have to be interpreted under the lens of the message and the overall purpose for which they're communicating to us. And so, I think for, as, we, as we continue through, these, uh, through this kind of place in Revelation that's rich with imagery, I want us to remember that. I think it's important for us to remember that these Revelation scenes that we see throughout are all joined together to communicate one message. 
Um, one thing we've talked about in, in Revelation, if you, you realize the way that the book is written, is that it is recording basically one huge vision that John has, right? So from chapter one, right? Chapter one, we get a few verses that introduce us, but in the middle of chapter one and all the way through chapter 22, through the end of the book of Revelation, is one big, large vision that John is given. And then the chapters that break down, the scenes that happen within are kind of like smaller scenes or smaller visions within the larger vision. And it's important for us to understand this because these scenes and these visions actually build on each other and they're part of the overall message that the vision is trying to communicate. You can think about it this way. I like, I like movies a lot, and so I, I kind of just think about it this way, that if Revelation was a movie, right, the scenes that are within, the chapters that are within that bigger, that bigger movie kind of contribute to the telling of the story. So if a movie has a plot line or it's trying to communicate something to us, those scenes are all tied together, although they may be different, they have different characters. One scene looks different, starkly different from another, and that it has a different setting or whatever it may be. At the same time, all of those scenes are joined together by the fact that they are within the same plot line and communicating the same thing as a movie, whatever the writer or the movie maker was trying to communicate. And in this case, Revelation kind of lines up that way. And you see, you see John, uh, in fact, we'll see John often, we're going to see it actually today, where he'll say from time to time, then I saw this, or then I saw that. That's a key to like a scene is switching from a different place to another, but at the same time, it stays under the same umbrella of the overall message of Revelation. And look, the message of Revelation is, I think, pretty clear from the beginning. The first five chapters set us up in understanding that this book, again, is about Jesus. It's about his work of salvation on our behalf. It's about him as king and his kingdom. It's about the future hope that we have because Jesus has overcome. And then out of that, he challenges us as the church to overcome and to conquer. Not as people who are trying to make our way through the world and just kind of grit it out the best we can, but as people who know the one who has overcome on our behalf. And that supplies us with hope so that we're able to live even in the most difficult circumstances in the world. We're able to, we're able to, to live even in the midst of persecution and temptation that may come to us as a result of the dragon and his beasts and all the rest that come on, that come on us. And I think if we can understand all of this, I think knowing that and keeping that in focus helps us solve about 90% of the interpretive issues that we face in the book of Revelation. Maybe it's 90%, maybe it's 80, 88%, I don't know, who knows. But I'm throwing out a number just to communicate. The, the reality is the overwhelming majority of the issues that we face would be solved if we just focus on the main thing. And that other 10% are t tend to be things that you know, theologians disagree on minor parts of and they've disagreed on for 2,000 years. I don't think we're gonna solve that 10%, that other 10% in a sermon series. Uh, you know, through this sermon series, but I would say this, that in the midst of it all, if we can understand and agree on the 90% and not get distracted by the 10% that we may agree or disagree on, then I think we can keep our focus on what this book is really all about. And then in the end, what we can do is just trust God with the other 10%, right? Realize that, you know, there are things that God has hidden from us in some ways. There are things that are too uh, maybe mysterious for us to understand. One day they'll be revealed to us, and one day we'll look at that and say, oh, that guy, that interpretation had it right, or that interpretation had this right. And then I think there's a whole bunch of this stuff that we're going to say, nobody even anticipated any of that. That's totally different than what we even thought it would be like. But again, that's a part of the 10% rather than the 90%. Okay, so with all that being said, we are continuing then into chapter 14 today. I wanted to get that in focus because what we're going to see in this chapter is really a scene that plays out with a lot of mini scenes that kind of go back and forth. And it can be confusing a little bit. We're not going to get into all the details and the weeds. We just don't have time to do that with, with this chapter. It's so long and there's so much there. But we are going to keep our focus on what the main point is. And in order to do that, I want to frame this correctly, again, within context. 
In chapter 14, we are engaging in a scene that has actually started all the way back in chapter 12. So a few weeks ago, we started in chapter 12. Chapter 12, 13, and 14 actually go together. And if you remember what happens in chapter 12, it is the scene of the dragon, the child, and the woman. We have a scene where John sees a red, a red dragon with seven heads who is getting ready to devour a child that's being born from a woman who is pregnant. That child represents Jesus, right? Jesus conquers the dragon who is Satan through his death, resurrection, and ascension. We're told that he is the king of kings, the one who rules with a rod of iron, the one who ascends to heaven, and he escapes the plots of, of Satan to destroy him. And then as a result, Satan's destroyed and he's thrown down into the earth where he chases after the woman who represents God's people. God sends the woman into the wilderness, protects her, and the dragon yet continues to assault and attack her and try to do everything he can to disrupt God's plans and to attack God's people. And so we see that all happening in chapter 12. And that's kind of like uh, an overview of the situation that we find ourselves in as God's people, right? A spiritual overview. And then in chapter 13, we get a little bit more detail about how the dragon actually does this. And he does it through the influence of, uh, a represent, he does it through influence in the world represented by a couple of beasts. The beast from the sea and the beast from the land. As we talked about earlier, those beasts represent kind of the power structures or the influence that the dragon can have in the world. Sometimes that exists through kings and kingdoms. Sometimes it exists through economies, politics, even in the religious realm. It can exist, or even in the religious organizations, it can exist in that way. But the beast relies on blasphemy and deception to try to deceive as many people as he can. Which brings us to where we are today. Chapter 14 is essentially the response to all of that. If we're asking the question of does God, what is God doing while all of this is happening on the earth and how are we supposed to respond as people who are trying to be faithful to the Lamb and trying to follow Jesus wherever he may lead us, this is what chapter 14 presents to us. A picture of what all of this looks like in very stark, real terms and then helps us to understand where God is taking all of this as it goes forward. What is this hope all about and what does it look like and why do we have hope? Why do we persist in this way? So, that is presented to us in detail in this chapter. As I mentioned earlier, it's a long chapter. We have 20 verses to cover this morning. And in a lot of ways, uh, these verses are full. It's a full 20 verses. Sometimes you read a chapter in Scripture and it's like, that's 20 verses, but it felt more like 10. This is like 20 verses that feel more like 40. Uh, it's thick. There's a lot in this. And so we're not going to get a chance to drill down into the minutia of a bunch of different imagery and that kind of thing. But the good news is that some of this imagery has already been covered and some of, it, some of the rest of it will be covered in later places in the book of Revelation. And then the rest just, you know, I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but at the same time, you know what I mean. All right, so this kind of breaks down in this way. All right, I, I do want to say that there's a discernible order to this because there are scenes within this larger scene. And the first scene that we have are verses 1 through 5. We're going to read about this here in a minute. But this first scene breaks out and introduces us to this scene by uh, present, presenting us basically with the eternal state of those who are with the Lamb, right? These are the promises that are fulfilled by the Lamb. It kind of comprises all the promises of God being fulfilled. It's a really encouraging, hopeful place to start this off with. Because then when we get to uh, verses 6 and 7, as a result of what we've seen in the first five verses, there is then a warning to repent, a call to repent, a call to receive the good news that's based off of what we've seen in the first five verses in that first scene. And then from 6 to 7, there's kind of a turning point where then verses 8 through 11 presents a picture of final judgment and the consequences of rejecting that gospel news, that announcement. And then verses 12 and 13 are an encourage, encouragement 
and a challenge to those who are faithful to remain in the faith, to continue to follow the Lamb, and to stay with Him. And then the last part there, verses 14 through 20, present another image of final judgment and what this all looks like. Whether you have decided to follow the Lamb or reject the Lamb, right then we've presented at the end with the ultimate destination of where each of us would end up, okay? So that's how it breaks down. With that being said, let's, re- let's read now into Revelation chapter 14. And so say one more thing. This chapter might seem a little bit repetitive. It's repetitive within itself, and it repeats a lot of images that we've already seen. We'll talk about why I believe that is here in a minute, okay? So, Revelation chapter 14, verse 1, it says this. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was the sound of harpists, was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. And then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She, is ma- she who has made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, for they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who who sat on on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who had, the authority over the fi- had authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress, as high as a horse's bridle, for 1,600 stadia. All right, so 
It may not be the first thing you notice, but you may notice that this chapter is a little bit, again, a little bit repetitive within itself and repetitive in terms of referencing other things that have come already in the book of Revelation. I think it's interesting to talk for a minute why it is that it's repetitive. I think one of the reasons is kind of what we talked about last week is that this book of Revelation is a book where God is not trying to conceal. God is not trying to hide what he's saying to us. He's trying to reveal what he wants to say to us. And so he uses repetition oftentimes to do that. He understands that these images might not be familiar. They might be difficult for us to understand. And so by putting these images in different contexts and allowing them to interpret one another, and then by pulling from other places that we've seen in Scripture, God's illuminating what he wants to say to us so that we can understand exactly what he wants us to get out of this. So in other words, God, this is repetitive because, you, and you may get frustrated by this, like I've seen these images over and over again, that kind of thing. If you're frustrated by the repetition, let me just encourage you you that God is doing this because he loves us. He's doing this because he wants us to understand this. And so let's talk about then what we see in these scenes and how they break down. As we said a few minutes ago, it breaks, this chapter breaks down into a few different scenes. And the first scene that we see is John, seeing that he, is John saying that he sees a figure of a lamb represent, which represents Jesus standing on Mount Zion. Now what exactly is Mount Zion? You may know that on the one hand, Mount Zion is at an actual physical place that exists here on uh, the world. Like you can go to the city of Jerusalem where Mount Zion is, and there is a place that is called Mount Zion there. It exists on the outside of the, of the wall of the old city. Um, I've never been there personally, but it is a place that you can physically go to. But the actual reference to Zion means more in the Bible than just talking about a hill in Jerusalem, and certainly that's the case here. Mount Zion is oftentimes connected to the entire city of Jerusalem and places in the Old Testament, and it's connected to some of the most significant events in the Old Testament as well. It's the place where Abraham was said to have heard from God. It's the place where Jacob had his vision of the ladder going into heaven. It's the place where Solomon built the temple of God in the Old Testament in the city of Jerusalem. And the word Zion is actually mentioned 152 times in the Old Testament. And it has all kinds of varying references from describing a mountain to describing a city to talking about just the general aspect of God's gathering his people together even referring in some cases to an eternal city, a place where God will be present with his people, will protect his people. It's presented as a place of God's victory. And in many cases is, is, has, has with it an expected promise that it points to a reality where God will dwell with his people forever in a place where he is with them and he has won victory on their behalf. Right. So it's a place that has a lot of, of, of kind of expectant meaning in it. It has a lot of promise in it. One of the places that we see that, I think, is in Psalm, and it is in Psalm 2. I want us to look at this because we see a reference to not only Zion and the kingship of Jesus, but you also see a reference to kind of the story of what is going on in the book of Revelation. I'll explain that here in a minute. See if you can pick it out, though, as we read it. Psalm 2 says this, verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the, in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have sent my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. 
Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now this psalm is so wonderful in a lot of different ways. I love when scripture just interprets scripture. It's just fantastic. And that happens right here in Psalm 2. I mean, think about this. This this is one part worship and celebration. Its main purpose is to kind of, is a coronation of Jesus. It's what's known as a a messianic enthronement psalm. It's celebrating the enthronement of Jesus as the one who is the rightful king. You see a lot of correlations between this and what's happening in the first part of Revelation 14. It's also one part um, promise Because for those who know Jesus as their king, it's a promise that he will completely and eternally rule over this world in righteousness and justice. And it's also one part warning to those who, uh, like the dragon and his beasts and anyone who would be targeted by that, anyone who would be tempted to follow the dragon and the beast, there is a warning to them. And you can even see in in verses 1 and 2, right, there's a reference to the nations raging and the peoples plotting in vain. It's kind of what Beast 1 and Beast 2 do, right? Beast 1 is blasphemous in his attack and his affront and his, uh, and his, and his, uh, and his opposition to the rule and the authority of God. And Beast 2 plots by deception in order to try to oppose the plans and the purposes of God. And so you see it right there. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together. They're plotting in, in deception and how they can oppose the authority and the rule of God. And in the end, what we see, though, is the victory of King Jesus celebrated through this psalm. In essence, what this psalm does is it tells a story. And it tells the same story that Revelation is telling. It tells the same story that the Bible is telling. It's the redemption of creation. It's the redemption of God through Jesus that brings us victory in the end, where his kingdom will reign forever. You even see the reference to the rod of iron. I remember the rod of iron from Revelation 12. He's the one who will rule with the rod of iron. So, so many connections in all of this. But again, you see the blending of all this judgment activity. It puts this in the proper perspective because when we get in, we just read through chapter 14, right? You saw that gruesome imagery about judgment. It puts this in the proper perspective. Helps us to understand that a necessity of God's judgment, again, is to remove all sin and evil and opposition so that the newness of creation can come, that the promise of God's eternal kingdom can reign forever. And as these play out in more and more vivid judgment scenes, what we see is that this is necessary in order for Jesus uh, to reign as king forever. And it's an expression of his rule as well. And so in this reference then, as Zion represents the totality of God's rule in Revelation chapter 14, where his character and his presence and his dwelling place are with his people again and for eternity. And what this does is, it does what a few of these images in Revelation does. It prepares us as foreshadowing for what's to come. When we get into Revelation 21 and we see this beautiful picture of the new creation and the new city of Jerusalem rising out of, or coming down from out of heaven, right? This is a picture of, this is Zion is a picture of what that is supposed to look like. So the rest of the scene then goes on, or the rest of this scene in the first part then goes on to focus on the implications for the 144,000 who are there with Jesus. In other words, those who have been sealed by the Lamb, those who have the name of Jesus and the Father on their forehead, as they're described. And notice in that scene, John describes them as the ones who have the name of the Lamb and the name of God on their foreheads, which is in direct contrast, again, 
to the mark of the beast, as we talked about last week. Right? The last verse in chapter 13, last two verses talk about the mark of the beast. And then the verse after it, the first verse in chapter 14, talks about the seal and the mark of the Lamb. In case we've forgotten about Revelation 5, this is brought back to our attention again. Again, it's repetitive, but it, it, it's repetitive in a way that reminds us of what is really true here and what is really something that we should be focusing on, which is not necessarily the mark of the beast per se, it's the mark of the lamb. And the mark of the beast is understood only within context and contrast to the mark of the lamb. And so you see all this rich imagery play out as a result of those who are saved by the lamb or are sealed by the lamb, they become things like new creations, they're blameless. Even that reference to them being virgins doesn't literally mean that they were virgins their entire lives. It's a reference to their faithfulness. We see that happen throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Israel being a faithful virgin to God is a representation of their faithfulness and their fidelity and their relationship with God. That's what that represents as well. And all these rich imagery represents the fact that we have been redeemed and saved and made whole and righteous by the one who has sealed us. And all of this is what covers us so that we are people identified and sealed by the Lamb. And I, I think um, as we consider the encouragement that we can draw from this, we might think again of the original recipients of this letter who are experiencing a, you know, a, a fair amount of persecution in their everyday life because of their faith. How much of it would have been an encouragement, again, to read the first five verses of this scene? Uh, to be encouraged, and even as you put that together with Psalm 2, and imagine them kind of singing Psalm 2 together about this, how much more could they be encouraged about all these things? In other words, what could the world take from them if they have this promise that is secured and saved for them? And we've, of course, spent a lot of time on this first part of the scene in this chapter, and I think for good reason, because this determines everything else that flows from this. But as you move to the next scene, what you see in verses 6 and 7 you begin to see these three angels that come out. John sees three angels that come out. And the first one, he describes as preaching the gospel or the good news to the world. And what happens here is both a bridge, as far as how it functions in this chapter, is that this action is both a bridge from the first part to the second part, as well as being kind of a metaphorical line in the sand. And it all turns on this announcement that the angel makes about the gospel, calling people to faith in Jesus, calling people to the gospel of the kingdom. We've got the first part there that describes the lamb and his followers and everything that comes with it. And then we got the second part which describes all of those who reject the gospel message, who reject the invitation to worship the lamb as king and to see him as their savior and their lamb who was slain on their behalf. And so what you see is again this metaphorical line in the sand here that even as the chapter functions, it, 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 it appears to be intentional because there is a distinction then between the destiny of those who are with the Lamb and those who do not accept the Lamb, those who reject the kingship of the Lamb, which are described as the ones who receive the mark of the beast. And as a result of that, they end up in judgment. And I, I know that in a lot of ways, right, as we read this, the dividing line is between those who respond in faith, and we read all this and they kind of that what is described in their final destiny is really harsh and really hard to accept. But let's not forget that this is what makes Satan who he is, that he rejected God's authority and wanted to live by his own authority. It's the same thing that he tempted, the, uh, that he tempted Adam and Eve with in the very first sin. It's still the temptation that he relies on today. Getting people to reject God's authority, getting people to reject Jesus as the rightful king so that they can either just kind of live the way they want to or they can directly oppose God's purposes in the world. And sometimes, and, and that has a bunch of different expressions, 
real life expressions in the world. Sometimes it looks like heinous and awful, obvious sin. Sometimes it may look like a bloodthirsty dictator. Sometimes it looks a little bit more tame, like just a nice person who doesn't really want to have anything to do with God because they want to live their own life for their own purposes in their own way. Both, at, at the root of both, is a rejection, though, of the authority and the kingship of Jesus. And all are expressions of the mark of the beast, according to what's being laid out here in chapter 14, the distinction between those two things. You're either marked by the lamb or you're marked by the beast in this vision. There's kind of no way around it. And, and, what, and what divides it, or what the dividing line is, is how you respond to the gospel invitation and the announcement that Jesus himself is king. And in that way, really, the line in the sand has been the same as it has been since Jesus arrived at the beginning of his ministry. When he announced, repent and believe the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand. And in response to that, ever since that and every time that is announced, people either heed that call to repent and trust in Jesus for salvation, to receive by faith all that he promises, or they reject that call. They reject the invitation. And again, that goes for Nero's and Hitler's and serial killers and rapists and wolves of this world, as well as for the nice guy who lives on your street, but he's an atheist and doesn't want to have anything to do with God. Again, the sin and the rejection is exactly the same in this regard. And look, I typically don't like to rely on fear when it comes to talking about salvation and faith in Jesus, but I also have to admit that there are many times when God uses warnings like what we have here in Revelation 14 to wake us up, and maybe even if absolutely necessary to scare us, if that's what's necessary to wake us up spiritually. In other words, sometimes the truth is scary, and fear is the proper reaction, especially considering our sin and what our sin does. I think there's a healthy fear that we should have about our own sin because it will kill us if we are not saved from it. And we're shown that here. In simple terms, right, it, I, I think about it this way. If you saw a child running at a distance into oncoming traffic, you would do everything you can to distract that child and get that child's attention, even if it meant screaming at the top of your lungs, even if it meant scaring them so it would stop them in their tracks and startling them, right? Because that's the loving thing to do because it would prevent them from running into full-on Destruction. I think in a lot of ways, as we read these judgment oracles, what we see is that God is shouting in the same way to us, to startle us, so that for those of us who are heading into oncoming traffic, so to speak, spiritually, or destruction spiritually, and we may not realize that we need to be awoken to this. And if we have to be scared into that to be awoken to it, then it's something that's necessary so that we can see the gospel and hear the gospel message that's offered to us. So the rest of this chapter really makes up that shouting to those who are wandering, to those who might be considering compromising their faith, to those who don't know the Lamb as their king, to those who are not sealed by the Lamb. And it also provides comfort, though, to those who are faithful in Jesus who are wanting justice and, 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 understanding, that, and understanding that they've become victims of evil, evil kings and kingdoms and of the beast and the dragon to know that he will be defeated and dealt with and that justice and righteousness will be the end of what Jesus does is an important thing for them to realize as well. And the gruesome details of the rest of the chapter just show us how surely and completely the judgment of God will come. And again, there's a lot of imagery we could pick through. Some of it is stuff we've already talked about, like the mark of the beast and the rest. Some of it is stuff that's coming, which is a reference to Babylon and all those kinds of things that will be fleshed out a little bit later. So we'll get to that here in the weeks to come. But I want to focus on this last scene as we close up today with the, last, with the time that we have left. 
And it's this scene that really drives home the, the understanding of the line in the sand between those who belong to the Lamb and those who don't. It's a final judgment scene that plays out here. And it plays out first with Jesus coming on a cloud. John sees him coming on a cloud. He has a golden crown on his head, which represents his righteousness and justice as, as the one who is the eternal rightful king. And as the one who is riding in on a cloud, it you know, highlights his divinity. He's called the Son of Man. Son of Man originates in Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man is described as the one who is the king of all kings, who will rule over all kings. So here Jesus is, is the authoritative king of all kings. And he has a sickle in his hand, which represents his judgment, and specifically represents the timing of his judgment, that he is sovereign, that he will bring judgment when the time is right, and he will bring judgment in the way that he brings it. And so there's a sickle imagery there that also presents us with a well-known imagery, well-known image that is kind of uh, given to us in a, in a few different places in Scripture in reference to judgment. And it has to do with this harvesting idea. And we see that from Jesus' kind of riding in on a cloud, then John sees these other angels who are the ones who are actually responsible for doing the sickling, if you will. I don't know if that's a verb, sickling. I don't know if you, is that cutting or sickling? Whatever they do, the crops, right? There's two different angels who do that, right? I think what's presented to us here is the dual nature of God's judgment. And dual na- by dual nature, I mean this. We typically think about judgment as a bad thing, especially in our culture, right? Don't judge me. You know, you shouldn't judge, blah, 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 all those kinds of things. But the reality is that judgment itself is a good thing, especially as it applies to God's judgment. Because what God's judgment does is distinguishes what is good between what is good and what is bad. It's God deciding what is good, what is bad, what is righteous, what is unrighteous, what is holy, what is unholy. And so the picture of this illustrates the dual nature of the fact that when God, or when Jesus judges, ultimately as the final judge, He will decide between what is good and what is bad. Really, those who are righteous, those who are not. More specifically, those who are his and those who are not. Those who are sealed by the lamb or those who are marked by the lamb versus those who are marked by the beast. And once it's all, and so he relies on, and so he presents to us this picture of the process of harvesting. Now, this is one that you may be familiar with. It shows up a lot in scripture, but essentially it goes like this. As a, as, a, as a farmer would come in, and this is kind of in the old agrarian ancient days, with his sickle, he would use his sickle to cut down the crops when they were ready for harvest. And in the harvesting process, he would take all the crops, put them on a threshing floor, and on that threshing floor, he would either use animals or he would beat it with sticks to separate the grain from the chaff. The chaff is the part that's dead, it's the part that maybe helps the grain grow, but in the end, all you really want is the grain or the fruit in the end. That's all the farmer really wants, because that's what has life, that's what has value, that's what has substance to it. And so in the process of separating the grain or the wheat from the chaff, he beats it, he has animals walk over it, he puts it all on the threshing floor, and then over a period of time, after that's been separated enough, he'll come along with a winnowing fork, and he uses that as a tool to throw up the chaff and everything that's there on the threshing floor so that the chaff kind of rises to the top because it's lighter, and the grain then sinks to the bottom. And then over the period of time, he would take that chaff off the top and throw it out because that's the dead stuff. That's the stuff that's useless. You don't want that. It doesn't have any value to it. And they would typically burn it as well, as as well as throwing it away. And so what you see is that once it's all separated, the the farmer would then take the seed or the grain. And in this imagery then, the farming imagery related to the sickle, this is commonly used for an image of judgment because the grain represents those who have life in them those who have been made new creations in Christ, those who have the life of Christ in them, those who, uh, as this passage says, are the fruits or the first fruits. It's represented by the grain. Those who have not received the life of Christ through his spirit are like chaff. 
There is no new creation in that. There is no life in that. Uh, and, and, and as it's described, they're often described as being burned away in judgment. In fact, as John the Baptist said in Matthew 3.12 about Jesus, he says this, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So the question is, now that we've gotten to the end of, of really the discussion of, of this chapter, with so much in it, what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this description of, of judgment and, 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 and this picture of, uh, of the distinction between those who are sealed by the Lamb, marked by the Lamb, versus those who are not? I think this is a challenge to each of us to consider where we are in relationship to the Lamb. Scenes like this are meant to cause us to ask, where do we see ourselves in this? What is the substance of my faith? Am I marked by the Lamb? Am I sealed by the Lamb? And if so, how do I know that? Am I saved by the Lamb? Have I been made new? Am I truly one who has taken on the life of Christ? Has the Spirit made me new? Am I the wheat or the chaff? And the reality of this is, of course, no one else can answer that for you. This is something that you and the one who is the Lamb, who is Jesus, uh, knows and you know. And, but here is a way to tell, though, Again, this has been a big challenge in the book. We talked about this earlier, this challenge that Jesus gives us to overcome or to conquer. We saw back in the beginning of the book that Jesus challenges, again, each of the seven churches of Revelation, although he says different things in the different settings and he condemns different things that they're doing, in the end, they all get this challenge in the end to overcome. Your translation may say conquer. And the question is, that might arise from that, and I think as we read through this, I think it's obvious because it's repeated seven times, we're supposed to, kind of think about this ourselves as well. What does it mean to conquer? What does it mean to overcome? Well, the key, I think, is in noticing right after those messages from Jesus telling the churches to overcome or to conquer, in Revelation chapter 5, which we've referred to a lot, but this is the Christophany that I think influences so much of our understanding of this book, we see that Jesus appears again as a lamb who was slain. And, and John is introduced to Jesus by one of the elders in this way. Notice, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, it says this, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. That word conquered, that word can be translated conquered or overcome is the very same word in the original language as what Jesus says back in chapters 2 and 3 to the churches as far as conquering or overcoming. He is the one who has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now here's the key to all of this. When Jesus says conquer, he is not saying to us, be better. Try harder, be more brave, or even be more faithful. What he's saying ultimately is, come to me. Because this is not about us conquering, it's about Jesus who has conquered. And as much as these are challenges and commands, and they are in the imperative form in those, in those places, they are more than anything an invitation. They're an invitation of Jesus saying, come to me, I am the one who has conquered on your behalf. It's not try harder, do better, clean up your act, be more faithful ultimately. It is come to me and trust in me as the one who has done it on your behalf. And that's the calling because Jesus has done it in the end. And notice the end of Psalm 2 says, blessed are those who take refuge in the Lord. You know, taking refuge is a condition that someone is in when they know that they need shelter, when they know that they need to be covered. Refuge is what we are encouraged to take in the Lord. And refuge is what we seek out when we're in a place of need 
and a place where we need to receive help in time of need. It's a hiding place. It's a place where we are covered. Refuge, spiritually, is saying, I need a Savior. I need a covering. I need to be hidden by the covering of the one who has overcome and conquered on my behalf. Because he has overcome our sin, he has overcome our death, and he has overcome the dragon. And chapters like this are difficult because they're meant to scare us a little bit, but I think they're meant to scare us into realizing the need that we have for refuge, the need that we have for a Savior. And what sin and evil makes out of this world and makes out of our lives is pure death and wrath. But we don't have to live that way. That doesn't have to be our destiny. It doesn't have to be our identity because he has overcome it all. And so what needs to be conquered for you today? As we're going to close, as we close this morning, we're going to pray here in just a minute, but I want to invite you to talk to God on your own for a little bit. And maybe that means bowing your head, closing your eyes, whatever it may be, but I want you to talk to God about this now. Where do you need Jesus to be your refuge? Where do you need to trust Jesus? Where do you need for him to conquer right now in your life? And how can you trust that he's conquered it for you? Is it for your salvation? Maybe as we ask the questions of have you been sealed by the Lamb? Have you come to him for your salvation, the covering of your sin, the forgiveness of sins and the promise of new life? Maybe you've never come to that place where you've understood Jesus as your refuge in that place. Maybe it's for your doubts. Maybe you're in a place right now that life is just so full of doubt, you're struggling in many different ways. Jesus invites you to come to him. Is it for your fears? Is it for addiction? Maybe you've been caught in a, in a, in a pattern of sin in your life that is just driving you further and further away from God and you don't feel like you can make your way back. In that, Jesus says, come to me. I'll be your refuge. Is it to trust him in the storms of your life? Things are swirling around you. You have no idea how they're going to turn out. Everything's confusing and a mystery right now to you. You may feel like you don't have footing in any place anywhere. Jesus says, come to me. Is it for your marriage, for your kids, for your identity? Whatever it may be, or take a minute, talk to God about it. Lord, your word to us says, blessed is the one who takes refuge in Jesus. We thank you that that's a promise to us today. As we seek to take refuge and trust in the covering that Jesus has given us, what I pray for each of us, wherever we may be at, as we hear your words, come to me and take refuge in me, that we would respond by faith. Wherever that may be, Lord, I know you meet us where we're at. You meet us all in different places across this room. But I pray in the end that we would see you to be faithful. That these words that we've read today would be more than just words on a page. They'd be more than just a story that was told 2,000 years ago. They would be every bit as real as John was seeing them happen before him. And be every bit as real as they were meant to be spoken as your word to us. And we believe there is power in your word. We believe, Lord, that your word given to us as it's revealed and applied by your spirit 
changes lives. So we ask you this morning, Spirit, would you come? Would you open our hearts and feed us with the words of God? That truly what Jesus said about man living by not just bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God would truly feed us this morning. That as David exclaimed, my cup overfloweth with the goodness of God. Let it overflow in our hearts and to our lives. And in the end, would the eternal hope that we have in Christ be something that resonates in our souls? We pray these things in his name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. All right, again, great to see all of you here this morning. Uh, Deborah, are you a prayer partner? Yeah. So Deborah Barry will be our prayer partner uh, for today for the second service. And so if you need somebody to pray with, Deborah will be happy to pray with you as we leave here this morning. We also have our prayer request cards that are located on the table with the cross on top of it. Uh, as you leave here this morning, if you want to fill out one of those prayer request cards and drop it in the offering stands as you leave, we'll make sure that we get those to our prayer team so we can be praying with you and joining with you in prayer for whatever may be going on in your life. Again, we know there are heavy things going on and we consider it a privilege to bear those burdens with you in prayer. And so please uh, allow us to do that by submitting your prayer requests, okay? All right, so hope you guys all have a great afternoon. There's no football this afternoon to ruin the beautiful day that we have, so you can go out and go, Hiking, enjoy a picnic at the park with your family, whatever it may be, but enjoy your afternoon. We'll see you next week. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.